You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. Ezekiel chapter 36 is where you want to be, and as you're getting there, just acknowledging the fact that sometimes... The same word doesn't mean the same thing in another language. Sometimes the same word doesn't mean the same thing in another language. Consider, for example, England and America, right? Two nations that are separated by a common language. Uh, Take the phrase, I'm so mad about my flat. In the U.S., I'm so mad about my flat expresses you're angry that your car has a flat tire. But in Great Britain, I'm so mad about my flat means you really love your apartment. So sometimes things can mean something different depending upon the way it's said. A great example, a more personal example I can think of is I grew up on the East Coast in New York, as many of you may or may not know. And when you order a cup of coffee in New York and say you want it regular, you get it with cream and sugar. Well, when you come out here to California and you order a cup of coffee regular, guess what? It doesn't come with cream and sugar. It comes black. All this is to prove that to understand what someone is saying, you have to understand the words they are using in the way they understand them. And that's the reason why, if you haven't been with us in a couple of weeks, we're spending the rest of the summer getting behind our English translation of key repeated biblical words. The goal is for us to better understand, better appreciate how they were used and understood in their original language of either Hebrew or Greek. And to do this, we've been focused on a biblical passage that really is central to both the Jewish and Christian faiths, a text from Deuteronomy chapter 6, formerly known as the Shema. You might have noticed it was our call to worship. It's been our call to worship for the last couple of weeks. So that's kind of been our focal point of picking out these words. And so far, if you haven't been with us, we've considered the first word, which is where the name of this passage comes from, Shema. The Hebrew word Shema means roughly to listen. We've also looked at the word Yahweh, the personal name of God, which we translate into English as Lord. And last week, if you weren't with us, and boy, did you miss something last week, uh, because I was singing in church. That's right, singing in church. It's recorded. Uh, You know, you're probably going to want to watch it again and again and again, because it's just so good. Uh, (laughs) The word we looked at, the real point of this was the Greek, the Hebrew word, excuse me, ahava, which means love. And in Greek, this this has the exact same meaning the word is agape. So we're looking at ahava and agape. That brings us to today. Today we're looking at the fourth key word in the Shema. A word, in fact, that's repeated 160 times, sorry, not 100, 860 times in the Old Testament alone. And that Hebrew word is lavav or lev. And it translates into English as heart. So say lev, lev. The word of the day is heart. That's right. Now, according to the dictionary in modern science, when we refer to the heart, we're talking about the hollow, four-chambered, pump-like organ of blood circulation, composed mainly of rhythmically correct, contracting smooth muscle that's located in the chest, between the lungs, slightly to the left. But in the Bible, in the law, the prophets, the Psalms, the Proverbs, the New Testament, References to the heart imply far more than just a pump that keeps blood circulating throughout our body. 
In the Hebraic context in particular, lev, the word lev, plays a much larger role than referring to our physiology. So in order for us to get a sense of this, we're going to read a quick example of a use of the word lev, of the word heart, from the book of Ezekiel. Now, if you haven't been in the book of Ezekiel, let me just set the stage before we read from it. Ezekiel was a priest who became a prophet during the time of Israel's exile from her homeland. And the Lord's message through Ezekiel to the people of Israel throughout the entirety of this book is back and forth. It's this message of judgment and hope. And as you're about to hear, both of these themes throughout Ezekiel of judgment and hope had something to do with the state of Israel's heart. So if you have your Bibles open, we're in Ezekiel 36, and I'm going to start reading in verse 22. It reads, Therefore say to the Israelites, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We all have our own ideas of what we mean when we say things like, my heart just isn't in it. Or she has a good heart. Or, my heart is breaking over this issue. Or, his presence makes my heart skip a beat. But what exactly is our heart, biblically speaking? What does Ezekiel mean when he speaks here of a heart of stone and God promising to give us a new heart? Well, to start us out, at its most basic level, the word lev, that word for heart, possesses this nuance of centrality. The word lev, in other words, refers to the innermost part of something, the innermost part. And that's why you'll find examples in the Bible where it speaks of the heart of the sea or the heart of the earth. And this also kind of teases out another dimension of this word, this Hebrew word lev. Lev, in its most general usage, also bears the connotation of depth. So if we just take that as our starting point, if we apply this general understanding of lev, the heart to human beings... The word lev in Hebrew refers to the inner person, one's deep core character. Now, just from this simple definition alone, I hope that you see that there is a distinction between how we speak of heart and how the Bible speaks of heart, of lev. Because where this is about, as I said, again, in the, in the biblical languages, heart is about one's inner person, one's deep core character. This is different from 21st century English. From 21st century English, the word heart is used primarily in reference to our feelings. We tend to think of the heart, in other words, as the seat of our emotions. And I want you to, be, to understand that, to be clear, part of the ancient Hebraic understanding of the heart 
included our emotions. Biblically, the heart is referenced as the place where one experiences the pleasure of happiness and joy as well as the pain of fear, sadness, or distress. In fact, did you know this? The phrase brokenhearted that we use originates from the Hebrew language. But here's the thing. While this is the extent of the association we make with heart, feelings, and emotions, the ancient Hebrew understanding of the word lev as the heart goes even deeper than this. Unlike our modern understanding, in Hebrew, the heart also referred to the seat of a person's intellectual life. Now, from our Western perspective, thoughts occur in the mind, and the mind is in the brain, the head. But Hebraically, this is simply not the case. Rather, thoughts occur in the lev, in the heart. In Proverbs, wisdom is said on more than one occasion. On more than one occasion in Proverbs, wisdom is said to dwell not in the mind, but in the heart. To the ancient Israelites, the heart was the seat of the mind, not the brain. The mind, if you will, was in the heart. Now, part of this is because the function of the brain was unknown in biblical times. Therefore, things that we generally associate with the mind, like reasoning, rationality, and the imagination, are described in the scriptures as the thoughts of the human heart. In fact, many ancient cultures, without an advanced understanding of physiology, assumed that the heart was the seat of intelligence, of all mental activity. And if we think about it from their limited perspective, it makes sense. Particularly if you remember that the Hebrews were a concrete-oriented people. And I've been bringing this up every week, and I'll bring it up, I'll refresh your memory or bring you up to speed. In the Hebrew culture and language, being and doing are inseparable. They're very concrete. Being and doing are not separated in how they live and in how they talk. So the Hebrews, the Israelites, used physical things to express abstract concepts. So if you put this together, from their perspective, the heart is the only moving organ in the body. Strong emotions cause the heartbeat to race, right? And when the heart stops beating, a person is dead. Hence, it was thought the lev, the heart, was where people were said to know, to understand, and make sense of the world around them. In fact, This was so strongly believed that there isn't even a single biblical Hebrew word to express our Western idea of the mind or the brain. Now, you may say, well, wait a second. I've read in my Bible, in the Old Testament in particular, where you see the word mind. Here's the thing. When you see the English word mind in your biblical translation, more often than not, it is usually the word lev, the Hebrew word lev. So, This was, again, different from our understanding of heart, but the biblical understanding of the heart goes even deeper than this. More than just the seat of our emotions, more than just the source of our intellect and our reason, lev was also associated with the human will, with discretionary, volitional decision-making. The heart was perceived as the place from where we make choices between our intentions and our desires and then take action. And this added layer of understanding to this word we use, heart, this this understanding from the biblical languages, I think helps inform, for me, one of the most paradoxical parts of the biblical story. And the story I'm talking about is Israel's exodus from slavery in Egypt. And what I'm specifically referring to when I say the paradoxical part of that story is you might remember when we hear about the story of Israel's exodus from Egypt, we hear about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. 
And many people get stuck on this, right? Because in this, in this account of Israel's exodus from Egypt in the Bible, sometimes this hardening of Pharaoh's heart is attributed to Pharaoh, and sometimes it's attributed to Yahweh. And the, if you're not... If you've not, never been stuck here, what gets people sometimes is this question. How could Pharaoh be held accountable for his resistance to God's word if Yahweh was pulling all the strings? And what we find out now to this better understanding of the word lev, we understand that it all comes back to a matter of the will. You see, if you look closely at the Exodus story, Pharaoh hardens his own heart toward Israel during the first five plagues. Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And in order for me to unpack this a little bit further, I'm going to have to actually throw another Hebrew word at you this morning. And that Hebrew word is the word chazak. And that Hebrew word is important because chazak in Hebrew is what we translate into hardened. So the chazak lev, okay, the hardened heart. Okay, the Hebrew word that we translate into English as hardened, chazak, actually means strengthened. So in other words, now you put this together with our understanding of heart, including the will, Shazak not being hardened as much as it is strengthened. In other words, despite the evidence of miracles and plagues, Pharaoh strengthened his resolve or set his heart to keep Israel subjugated. He wanted what he wanted and exercised or strengthened his will against the will of God. Now, as the Exodus story continues, there is this subtle shift as we read, Yahweh then hardens Pharaoh's hearts, Pharaoh's heart during the last five plagues. And again, from what we've just unpacked, in other words, what is that actually happening is Yahweh turns Pharaoh over to his own desires and will. Yahweh gives Pharaoh what he wants. If you're going to strengthen your resolve against me, then I'm going to give you your resolve, your will. Now, this isn't just something that happens in the Exodus story, by the way. This isn't unique to that that story because way, way later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul affirms that if we continue to resist the Lord's direction and prompting through the Holy Spirit, God will let us have our way. Our will be done in our lives rather than his. So, bring this all together to review Lev, the Hebrew word as we translate as heart, stands for the inner being of a person, the intellectual, affective, and volitional center of a human being. From our heart flows our emotions, our thinking, our desires, our choices, and our actions. How we decide, what we decide, what we do as a result of what we decide, and how we feel about what we do and what we think about all of it, that is Lev. That's the heart. It is, in other words, the source of how one speaks and lives. The centrality of love, of heart, to our humanity is why the scriptures speak of Yahweh searching and focusing on the heart of a person. Do you remember those scriptures where Yahweh searches the heart of a person? This is why, because it's because of this understanding. While others, the scriptures tell us, may take pride in appearance or outwardly look at the bodily frame, Yahweh knows what constitutes a person's essential self because he casts his penetrating gaze on the heart. Biblically, to know a person's heart is to know the actual person. Proverbs 27 puts it this way. Proverbs 27 declares, the heart is the mirror image of a man or a woman's character. 
The heart is the mirror image of a man or a woman's character. And this, this little thing from Proverbs 27 maybe helps us even more. It helps us to kind of unpack this. Because if we stick onto this idea of the heart as the mirror image of a man or woman's character, this maybe helps us to understand Lev in the context of the Shema, this call, this prayer. Remember, in the Shema, it says to love Yahweh with all your heart. And what that now means is to love Yahweh with all your heart is to reflect the image of God in whom we are created, to represent God's point of view and character through how we interact in the world. And perhaps this helps us better understand kind of a modern Christian phrase that we have. It didn't exist in biblical times. We talk a lot as Christians today about asking Jesus into your heart, right? Have you asked Jesus into your heart? And what we see from this biblical understanding of the word heart, of lev, it's not about so much having Jesus in our heart as it is letting Jesus have our heart, reflecting Christ as our core in our thoughts, in our words, and in every deed. Just as a healthy human heart is is at the center of the body and absolutely essential for physical life and health, so too a healthy spiritual heart, the intellect, the emotion, the will, is at the center of one's inner being and serves as the foundation of all moral attitudes and actions. Our spiritual heart controls our actions, our actions determine our habits, and which in turn determine our character. Jesus himself, in fact, told us to recognize the lev, or as he used the word in Greek, cardia, the lev or the cardia, the heart, is the taproot of our lives, that it is out of the presuppositions of our hearts that we either speak and enact evil or good. Jesus even went further when he declared, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For Jesus in the heart In our true focus, our center, in the midst of that which drives us, our treasure resides, and out of it fruit is produced, and from it words and deeds emerge in our lives. Now you see, it's based upon this multi-layered, rich understanding of the heart that the scriptures will go on. This idea that the scriptures will go on and say it's because the heart holds the key to one's essential makeup that the scriptures will say the content and condition of a heart must be regularly examined. We are called again and again throughout the Bible to listen to how we speak, to pay attention to how we act, to reflect upon our attitudes and beliefs, to honestly confront our desires in order to test our hearts. Even more than this, the scriptures go further. Because of its life-determining influence, The scriptures caution us again and again, not just to examine our hearts, but they also say to carefully guard them, to carefully guard our hearts. Now, because you see this all over the place in the Bible, this call to examine your hearts, guard your hearts, we could get very, very fixated that all this examining and guarding is because of some external force that's going to come at our hearts. It's going to come at the core of our being. But you're kind of missing the nuance of what the scriptures are saying. Because underscoring these, both of these biblical admonitions to, to both examine and guard our heart is that what threatens our hearts are not external forces. What threatens our hearts are an, is, an inter, is an internal problem. 
We are not called to examine and guard our hearts, in other words, as a way because of something that's going on outside of us that's coming at us. We're not called to examine and guard our hearts as a way of perfecting or purifying them ourselves. This isn't some idea of, hey, clean yourself up, get yourself put together better. Because the protective measures the Bible admonishes us to take to examine and guard our hearts are because our hearts, as they exist in this broken world, are both defective and deceptive. The Bible calls us again and again to examine and guard our hearts, not because of something coming at us, because of a problem within us, that our hearts, as they are in this broken world, are defective and deceptive. Prophets, like Jeremiah, did not have an optimistic view of the human heart. Jeremiah himself, he watched his own people turn away from Yahweh, even sacrificing their children to appease false gods. And this led him to declare on Yahweh's behalf. These are Jeremiah's words. He writes, The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? So this is the key right here. The whole point of unpacking all this vocabulary, this language, is what the scriptures want us to understand in this fuller, deeper, richer understanding of love, of heart, is this. We, all of us, have a heart problem. We have a heart problem. A serious flaw, a fatal health risk, health risk exists within the human heart that goes back, all the way back, to humanity's decision to elevate the human will over and against our Creator's will for us. In our rebellion against and separation from Yahweh, our hearts, our thoughts, our feelings, our inclinations, and our actions became no longer in sync with the beat of God's heart. And this irregular heartbeat due to sin reproduces itself in every human heart. And this irregular heartbeat that we all have inside of us inevitably, apart from the Lord's intervention, leads us to have a divided heart that gradually becomes a heart of stone and ultimately ceases to work, resulting in our spiritual death. The Bible, in fact, points to telltale signs of this kind of heart disease when it speaks of people who lack heart. Now, here it is again. When we use that phrase, right, when we talk about people lacking heart, we mean someone like uh, an athlete who lacks the personal conviction and focus to do what it takes to win. When we use the expression lacking heart, we could maybe be referring to someone who gives a gift but didn't, take, didn't care enough to really think about it, to, to get something of importance. That's what we mean by lacking heart. But the Hebrew idiom lacking heart refers to someone who has lost, who, is, who lacks common sense, good sense. Someone who is lacking wisdom, insight, empathy, and understanding. Someone who lacks the will to do what's just common sense. Biblically, people who lack heart eventually lose heart. And again, there's that distinction. Because when we talk about losing heart, we talk about, oh, don't lose heart, don't give up. But when the Bible talks about losing heart, it's not about giving up. When someone who lacks heart loses heart, what's happened is they eventually have become captive to the corruption of self-absorption and subject to all kinds of terrible and self-destructive decisions. Now, to bring this all together for you, let me give you an example straight out of the book, straight out of the Bible. Let me give you the example of King David, an example intentionally chosen, because if you remember, King David is someone who is famous in the Scriptures for being a man after God's own heart. 
But here again, given what we now have understood about Lev, the word Lev, to be a person after God's own heart didn't mean that David tried to work himself up and get all emotional about the things that upset Yahweh. No, to be a person after God's own heart meant David desired to conform not just his emotions, but also his thoughts, his desires, his intention, his will to those of his heavenly father. As I mentioned earlier, the call, the prayer of the Shema, to love Yahweh with all your heart is to reflect the image of God in whom we are created. It is to represent God's point of view and character in how we interact in the world. David longed for this. He wanted to be a man after God's own heart. He pursued the heart of God. But if you know David's story, despite his longing for this, to be a man after God's own heart, it became all too clear, right, that he wasn't able to bring this about on his own. His heart deceived him. David ended up, if you know his story at all, making a bunch of self-centered choices, chief among them, right, to take his choice to take another man's wife, Bathsheba, kill her husband in order to have her for himself, and then try to cover it up. His outlook skewed, his attitudes jaded. David's life eventually became overwhelmed by the destructive consequences of his choices. When a mirror was finally held up for David to see himself by the prophet Nathan, when a mirror was finally held up for David to see himself, all his heart offered him, all he saw was failure, regret, disappointment, and hopelessness. Because David's heart, my friends, like ours, is inherently flawed. No amount of self-help, no amount of ritual restitution, no amount of personal sacrifice could fix David's heart condition. David found himself able to do only one thing. Do you remember what it was? All David could do was pray. Was pray. He pleaded to God for something he did not possess, a heart without the stains, without the sin, and all the corruption that led him into so much sorrow. He prayed, create in me a clean heart, O God. Notice, when David asks for a clean heart, he doesn't ask for his heart to be refreshed. David asks for it to be created. David realizes he needs a new heart to be a person after God's heart, David understands he needs God to give him his heart. Unless Yahweh creates a new heart for him, gives David his heart, David is done. My friends, David's personal epiphany is not isolated to himself. His divinely inspired insight is the one hope of all humankind. Because from Moses through the later prophets, like Ezekiel here, the redemption of humanity is persistently framed as taking place only by way of a heart transplant. The Apostle Paul will later express it in terms of the circumcision of our hearts. And now with this full understanding of Lev, we can better appreciate what Paul meant by this provocative phrase, right? John took us through this when he took us through the letter to the Galatians earlier this summer. Paul argues physical circumcision as a sign of submission to the covenant promises of Yahweh was always intended to point to a deeper commitment, the dedication of not just one's body, but one's whole person to God. Therefore, Paul writes in the letter to the Romans, circumcision is really a matter of the 
heart, yielding to the Spirit of God, cutting away the flesh of our will, our thoughts, our intentions, and being conformed more and more to Yahweh's will and plan for our lives. It's a lot of stuff. This is a rich, this is why we're doing this. There's some richness and depth here that we're kind of swimming in. And we just, in looking at the heart and seeing it from all these different ways, it brings us here. It brings us to a little health checkup, spiritually speaking, of course. How's your heart? How's your heart? I look around and I know many of you. I know pretty much all of you. And I know that you're here because you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You're here because you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I look around this room and I know that you, many of you, all of you, have called yourself a Christian for years. But I'm asking you this morning, does Jesus have your heart? To whom or what does your heart belong? Have you had the heart transplant that Ezekiel tells us to anticipate? Have you received a new heart? The heart of Jesus. Christ's heart for you. Because you see, remodeling won't do. And some of us are very good at remodeling, right? But you can't just give up some parts but keep others of your old heart. You can't just give up some but keep some parts of your former way of thinking, your former way of feeling, your former way of desiring, your former way of acting. My friends, hear this. A forgiven heart isn't the same thing as a new transformed heart. And many of you have stopped short at forgiveness. You've been told all your lives, or you've just accepted all your lives, that what this is all about, fundamentally, is being forgiven by God. And please, don't misunderstand me. You are forgiven by God in Christ. We are forgiven by God in Christ. But it's not the end game. It's merely the starting point. Forgiveness is not the end of the gospel. Forgiveness is the beginning of the gospel. God doesn't just say he will forgive you. God, by way of forgiveness, promises to give you a new heart to transform your life. A forgiven heart isn't the same thing as a new transformed heart because a new transformed heart, that kind of heart, produces transformative action. It radically alters how we live. So I'm asking you again, how's your heart? Are you living differently? I know you're forgiven. I'm telling you you're forgiven, but are you living differently? Are you thinking? Are you feeling? Are you desiring? Are you choosing differently in terms of how you interact in this world? The scriptures, when they speak in this very interesting way about Yahweh writing his word upon our hearts, This is the promise of a changed heart, a new heart, a heart transplant, where we receive, where we have our stony, divided hearts replaced by hearts of flesh, like Ezekiel talks about, hearts of flesh, the word of God made flesh in Jesus Christ. God's promise that comes with our new heart Paul, Peter, John, and the rest of the New Testament writers pick up on this, and we kind of glaze over it. God's promise that comes with our new heart is becoming like Christ, reflecting and representing Jesus' point of view and character in how we feel, in how we think, in how we desire, in how we engage the world. And this isn't just, you know, wishful thinking. Did you know? Did you know? 
that even medical science is beginning to catch up with God's vocabulary, recognizing that there's more to the human heart than blood flow. Evidence is mounting that echoes the Hebrew understanding of the heart as responsible for personality, reason, and emotion. Medical science is seeing that the heart has some part to play in personality, reason, and emotion. All characteristics, by the way, that were once believed to be the exclusive domain of the human brain. In fact, since the advent of the human heart transplant, doctors have received reports from a significant percentage of those who've received transplants of having a dramatic change in their personality and preferences. Interestingly, that are identical to those from whom they received the transplant. Did you know that? This was fascinating to read, but I could go go right now, but I'm not going to go telling you stories. But this is the point. This is what I'm laying before you. Some people, sorry, obviously, some people even have reported they felt like another person was living inside of them. And what I'm laying out in front of you, just this example that we're seeing in medical science is this. If that can happen, if this can happen, if Yahweh created that possibility with the physical heart he designed for us, how much more can the Lord do with our hearts spiritually? Do you believe you can become a new person? Seriously, do you believe you can become a new person? Do you understand today that all it takes is a change of heart? Have we stopped trying to accomplish this kind of change on our own? I mean, seriously, whether you believe in Jesus or you don't, can we just, can we lay it out here? I mean, we come back week after week to just, it's almost like we're banging our heads against a wall. There is no sense in you trying your best to reform your ways. We are too far gone, people, too far gone to recover by bootstrap psychology. Our hearts deceive us when we try to determine what's good for us and what isn't. Our hearts as the centers of our personalities are riddled with excuses, with deferrals, with desires, and with self-acquittals, are they not? We can try and try again, but without a new heart, the clogged old arteries are going to create a serious life-threatening blockage. We don't need a makeover. You don't just need to be forgiven. Hear me, you need to be forgiven, but you don't just need to be forgiven. You need, we need a change of heart. David's revelation is intended to be our revelation. No matter what we tell ourselves, no matter what you're telling yourself right now, no matter how, far, how, how hard we try to run the table and beat the odds, you cannot hide from the one who knows you so well. Our creator, Yahweh, the God alone who knows us thoroughly. Nothing is hidden from the Lord because the Lord sees our hearts. And this freaks us out, right? This freaks us out because most of us would rather not have anyone know all about us. I mean, there's thoughts and deeds that each of us would rather keep on the down low. I mean, we know ourselves pretty well, right? I mean, we know how many times we've broken promises. We know how many times we've betrayed trust. We know when we've acted with selfish motives, lied, deceived, grieved others. And we know that those past acts present a formidable picture of a very imperfect human being. The truth is, 
we would probably not want to be associated with someone like us. And so we try to hide. We try to hide from that person. We try to cover up that person. We try to cover it all up. We try to clean up our own mess. The thing is, whenever we try to clean up our own mess, all we ever do is dump it on someone else. All we ever do is dump it on someone else. And that doesn't make anything or anyone better. It just makes everything worse. Ezekiel's declaration to Israel on behalf of Yahweh is the Lord's announcement to you and me, to us all. Our Heavenly Father knows everything, okay? Yahweh sees us. Yahweh sees it all. And amazingly, in spite of this complete knowledge of who we are, the Lord stands ready to accept us exactly as we are. The greatest fear is this, right? The greatest fear If you knew all about me, you wouldn't love me. Yahweh says just the opposite. I know all about you. And I love you. God accepts us as we are, but God loves us so much, he refuses to leave us where we are. This is because Yahweh sees something we don't see. He sees us as we ought to be. He sees us as we were intended to be as we can be through a change of heart. The good news, my friends, this morning, the good news is that Yahweh not only is not only willing, but promises to change our hearts. Whereas the only way we know how to clean up our messes is to dump it on someone else, Yahweh comes down in Jesus Christ to pick up our mess and take it away. The stake that gets driven through our defective and deceptive hearts is the cross upon which Jesus willingly and lovingly hangs for the world. And that new heart we need, that new way of thinking, feeling, desiring, and acting that keeps us in rhythm with God's heartbeat comes by way of the resurrection and the Holy Spirit of Pentecost. All that is asked of us, like David, all that is asked of us, like David, is to fall on our knees and relinquish ourselves to our great physician, to not just receive Jesus in our heart, but to have our heart changed, to receive our new heart, his way, his truth, his life, his heart for us. Amen.